Tim Bowling is the author of numerous collections of poetry, including The Annotated Bee and Me, Fathom, The Book Collector, and The Memory Orchard. He has also published three novels, including The Bone Sharps and The Paperboy's Winter, and a memoir entitled The Lost Coast, Salmon, Memory, and the Death of Wild Culture. He has most recently published Tenderman, which is my 10th collection of poetry, and um, just about to publish, actually, next week, um, a new novel called The Tinsmith. Bowling lives in Edmonton, Alberta. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you very much. Wonderful to be here. You're a collector, and you've written a terrific book about well, thank you. About collecting. It's called In the Suicides Library. Beautifully uh, produced book by Gasparo Press. Perhaps if, if you could just give us a very quick overview of the book, and then we'll get into specific quotes and passages sure. about collecting. Well, it's a book that it's a, I call it my sort of minor midlife crisis, which is, becomes not so much about sports cars and chasing young women and that sort of thing, but it's a matter of suddenly deciding that I'm very interested in the material book and, and start to become a collector. And um, I have an experience in a university library where I find a copy of a Wallace Stevens poetry book that has this incredible, beautiful ownership signature in it of a minor cult American poet from the 1950s who was mostly legendary for either having jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge uh, in 1955 or having disappeared into Mexico. I knew a little bit about him. I knew a couple of his poems. And so I stood there in the library staring at, at this volume thinking, how on earth did this book get here? And that set me off on a, about an eight-month journey into exploring this man's life, exploring my feelings about, about poetry, about book collecting, about parenthood, about a lot of different things. You mention uh, in the book the fact that collectors experience interesting coincidences quite often, and I experienced one when I was reading your book. It was out in the, the middle of eastern Ontario, and there's a little bookstore in the town, Golden Lake. So Weldon Keys, the poet in question, who I'd never heard of, was in my mind, and I went to Golden Lake Bookstore, and I'll show you afterwards. There's, oh. a, there's a book on Weldon Keys that oh, I picked yeah. up there, oh. so what are the chances, you know? This is a tiny, not, tiny not little good. bookstore. <laughs> but maybe you could talk about that. Why do you, do you think we're on, we're on the lookout, or we're always, you know, what is it about collecting and coincidence? Well, I think part of it might simply be that old saw about how when you, you come across a new word, you'd ne never heard before and then suddenly you're aware of you see it three or four different places and it's all all around you all of a sudden what happened to me with Weldon Keys for example is when I set out to start writing about him certain things would happen I would sit in a cafe and and I would hear these discussions of, of suicide around me like verbatim you know and it's like well maybe these sorts of discussions were going around me before and I just wasn't tuned to them but somehow I think uh, it's mysterious. There's a spirit. There's a kind of a spirit in books, mm -hmm. and um, these get this gets into the area of, of the unfathomable. You know that um, I'm not sure I'm qualified to comment on. But strange things do happen in terms of uh, one book leading to another. You've quoted Emery Walker, who worked with William Morris, and here it goes: the wholeness, symmetry, harmony, beauty without stress or strain of the book beautiful, would then be one in principle with the wholeness, symmetry, harmony, and beauty without stress or strain of that whole life 
which is constituted of ourselves and the world, that complex and marvellous whole which, amid the strife of competitive forces, supremely holds its own, and in the language of life writes upon the illuminated pages of the days, the volumes of the centuries, and through the infinitudes of time and space moves rhythmically onward to the full development of its astonishing story, the true archetype of all books beautiful or sublime. Well, I mean, I think anyone who seeks to write a book or, pub or make a book doesn't think it's just a matter of, of paper and ink and uh, glue and bindings and everything else, that there's so much more going on. That, that harmony that's spoken of there, uh, I think ideally if a book brings all from the writer, the designer, the printer, if all the components, if everyone's on board with trying to create whatever that vision is, it's like any human creation that's going to going to surpass its time. It's going to be meaningful because it has that harmoniousness. It's going to last beyond its, its moment. Because and it's got life. Because it's been invested with, with passion. Uh, and, and craft. You've mentioned that earlier today. We were just talking about the, the, the value and the importance of craft. And we talk about the fate of the book and whether how, what's going to happen with the material book. I think the book just naturally attracts uh, a certain kind of passion. And I, I don't mean simply the people, readers and, and, and writers, but people, there's a certain real passion. And I'm sure you've spoken to some of these people that the passion that comes with producing. A book, and I—I don't even really understand. I talk to designers. I've been very fortunate. My work has been brought out in uh, in some lovely editions, uh, and when I hear uh, you know designers and, and and printers talking about you know marrying the right design to to the type of book and to the type of writing, I, I think well, you must know it's a, it's a skill. It's yeah. a real skill, and and, and it's uh, the use of hands too uh, yeah. often, isn't it? Mm -hmm. When, uh, when the, book beautiful is produced well absolutely one of the great things about it i think is uh, if I, i've worked a lot with gasparo press who's a very fine press in, in nova scotia and what i love about it is that they're you know they're completely up to date with all the all the modern printing techniques but whenever they make a little money they they often put themselves right back behind the eight ball by going out and buying some old printing press that somebody's going to get rid of yeah. and they've got to go and get it and then fix it up and put it back into into use. So it's it, yeah, you're quite right. It's about more than books in a way. It's it's a it's a way of life. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an attitude towards life, and it does involve real hands-on application, which is uh, wonderful with intellectual work. You know, if you get mm -hmm. that combination. Well, in fact, Crispin Elstead talked about, mm -hmm. about exactly that. The the Barbarian Press marveling at the fact that uh, he actually could do something with his hands mm -hmm. yeah. and connect it with uh, with another love. Right. Let's move move a little further along in the book, where you say, I had been reading seriously for most of my life and had only regularly encountered this word in two places. Now, the word is covet. The Bible, where coveting is definitely frowned upon, and in books about book collecting, where coveting is, generally speaking, the whole point. Well, you know, I was not a book collector. I was a reader who didn't care what the edition was. Up until I was about, not that many years ago actually, half a dozen years ago. Uh, partly that's what uh, in the Suicides Library is about. It sort of happens around the time that I'm starting to become a book collector. One of the amazing things to me about, about writers is writers you know, produce books but have such 
often little understood. First of all, writers are not often book collectors. Yeah. They often writers don't care. Probably because I've heard it put, you know, writers are more interested in in a hundred printings uh, than in one. It's, you know, they, don't, they want to get really, it out of the first they, edition. Yeah, they yeah. want to get it out of the first edition <laughs> into many. Uh, and yeah. I, you know, believe me, I understand that. <laughs> but at the same time, even that lack of knowledge of, of simply the parts of a book, like the actual material quality of a book and what goes into making a book, um, and I'm still remarkably ignorant on it. But I've I've begun to to to, to get interested, and the, the covetousness. Well, first of all, it's great fun to read books about book collecting. And what I wanted to do with this book in particular was I wanted to write a book that was about book collecting and the, the passion of it that had a bit of a fictional narrative to it in the sense that it has a, a narrative arc. It's a story and there's a quest. Because I'd read a lot of books about book collecting and, and as much as I love them, as books in terms of stories, bit they, they, they're a bit yeah. dry. I thought, okay, well, I'm going to try to do a little combination. Um, and uh, it was fun. <laughs> it was great fun to well, read. Well, it, it, it was fun to read too because there is this uh, this rendezvous with the mm -hmm. bridge that we we keep getting foreshadowings right. of. As A. Edward Newton put it, great collector: the better the book, the higher the price, the better the bargain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's a pretty good justification to blow a lot of money. And the other thing that goes hand in hand with that is book collectors saying that they you never regret what you bought, you regret what you didn't buy, and uh, I've experienced that. So it's not buyer's remorse; it's whatever the opposite of that is, where you, you for one reason or another you couldn't put the money down to yeah. buy this. And but it's like any I mean it, we're fundamentally talking about a form of materialism that you, mm -hmm. you're collecting things. Yeah. Right, even though these these things have the essence of of a human you know spirit in them, they're still things. You see it in the book collecting world quite a lot. Someone will go absolutely whole hog at it for years, and then just to completely abandon it after fifteen or twenty years, or even five years, ten years to put the this. It'll be so important, and then you have to walk completely away. That's interesting, and, and maybe there's an element of of the gambler in all of this that, that makes it, you know, maybe a bit, bit dangerous. I was fortunate enough to have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with the South African author, J.M. Kotsia. I'd exchanged emails with him periodically over the last number of years, and uh, he agreed to sign all of my books. So I lugged about 40 of them down. <laughs> and while he was signing them, I think I must have gone through some kind of mini-crisis, because mm -hmm. I was thinking to myself, why am I doing this? Hmm. Am I kidding myself? I've got some kind of special connection with this man? Is it because I, these are signatures hmm. that are valuable? Why am I doing this? Do you ever get <laughs> to that? I mean, I make the point in the book, the whole, the whole thing is very sentimental, fundamentally. It's like sports. If you, if you watch the NHL, you have to pretend that it matters in order to get anything out of it. And, and you, you have, have to, to invest you have emotionally. To, you have to play the game, so to speak. And if you're going to be a book collector, perfectly fine to have those moments of doubt, I think. But at the same time, maybe maybe those moments of doubt keep you from being the bibliomaniac. Or the um, gambler. The, yeah. the, the truly the, addicted. The truly addicted, right. Yeah. If you can stand outside and say, well, this is all maybe a little bit silly. But you know what? I, I've had those moments, but I've also... But it's fun. For me, it's all about the personalized library. Yeah. I want to have personalized books signed yeah. by often, yeah. well, living authors. But if I have the choice between uh, paying a premium for a, a first edition that's in beautiful shape 
or paying less for one that has a, an association quality to it, uh, it but the condition's not as good I, I'll go for the association always because that's what it is for me because books books for me are the products of people who who worked on them so that's what matters to me that they've it, touched it for uh, one well, thing or yeah or or Delmore Schwartz uh, was an American poet who said all he ever wanted was a seat at the table I think that's what it is for me I like I like to imagine you know, if I have all these personalized books on my shelves, I feel like I'm participating. Because the world, you know, the fortunes of the, the literary author, you, you're blown one way and the other. And the, the, what, what can you count on? What you can count on are, are the, the writers and the books that made you want to be a writer. It's a refuge, I guess. But it's also more than that for, for me. Um, it's an inspiration. The idea that I can care so much about the books and, and who wrote them Maybe a part of its ego in the sense that I'd like somebody else to care that much about my books. You know, it <laughs> yeah. might be partly that. Now, this is something that's very dear to my heart, mm -hmm. and that is coming up with a considered defense or argument in support of the importance of collecting to culture. You thought about that much? Yeah, I think many people today, I think, with the digital age, the way books and manuscripts have have mattered um, as cultural products is rapidly shifting just in terms of you know what happens when you have writers who if they don't have handwritten drafts of things and you, you don't have that that trail from the first draft to the next draft to the next draft to the next draft if it's all just in the ether then what is the cultural importance of you know a signature on a book compared to all these different stages from a literary analysis point of view. I think collecting is absolutely a form of archive work, but how do we know what's going to be important? I don't think it can be that cold-blooded. For me, I don't think I question it. If, if, I, if I love something enough, mm -hmm. if I'm passionate enough about it to want to collect it, then I just naturally assume that it's going to matter to someone else. Maybe not a lot, of people and and the culture I mean that's a big word I don't know what even really what, what that means poetry for example or, or any of the art forms what is their cultural significance what is the cultural significance of, of poetry in Canada today you know Al Purdy was a fairly significant Canadian poet and after he died he was attacked quite a bit and I'd say overrated and this and that Irving Layton had a bit of that same thing sort of happen and, and, and you can buy their first edition yeah. signed oh, for, for pittance absolutely yeah. a a pittance. Well, is that going to always be the case? I don't know. But does that mean that they're not important culturally to Canada? I don't know how important they are. <laughs> There's a certain point, you know, uh, I think where when you care enough about something, whether it's poetry or opera or whatever it is, that you kind of tend to lose a sense of reality for what other people's <laughs> reality is. Yeah, I think you're right. You have to have that belief that yeah. what you're doing is and what you love is, is worth loving. Absolutely, but I think I'm not deluded about it anyway. I don't expect, and it's the same when you t people talk about poetry in general and bringing poetry to the people and making poetry more popular. And I gave up on that a long time ago because I just thought, well, poetry is always going to be, and it's always yeah. mattered to some people, but not a lot. Yeah. And, and it matters so intensely to that small group of people that that's enough for me. Maybe that's true of, of book collecting too. Maybe it's only ever going to matter to a small percentage of yeah. people. And I'm not talking simply about the financial value of books, but in our society anyway, that, that is a measure of something's value, a very big measure. Mm -hmm. And if you see what's happened with the price of collectible books, you know, in the last 25 or 30 years, it's, I guess that's cultural significance. In fact, it's gone down. I guess it reached a high point.
a while back. But still, I mean, the, you know, the fact that you can go on the internet and you can see a, uh, a first edition of, I don't pick any classic book that you looked at in university. But just say it'll cost a, an amount of money that would shock my mother or anybody that's not actively involved in the book world to say that you'd spend $100,000 on a copy of, you know, The Great Gatsby. Or... For most people, I think, yeah. that's ridiculous. Because you can get the same thing in a paperback, for, that's right. you know, and you can or read it. Kindle. Why would you yeah. need to do that? Yeah. Why yeah. would you? Why would you do that? I mean, because that is a lot of money. Yeah, I don't think you'd be able to find a Canadian book that goes for that, though. Well, Canada's status as a cultural producer is still, uh, despite what Canadians might think. Uh, I've gone. You know what, I, Nigel? I, I mean, it's it's uh, that sort of stuff is right out of your control, anyway. I mean, a Canadian book. What what is the most valuable? Canadian book. It's a good you know, question. From a, uh, from a collectible point of view, in literary terms. I've got the Canadian Governor General's uh, award winners here. I've got pretty well all of them except, wow. except for one yeah. that no one seems to be able to find. What, what year is that? It was the late 30s, early 40s. It's wow. called The Dark Weaver huh. by um, Laura Salverson. Huh. But I'm, I'm telling you, I was able to acquire, and most of them are signed. I think the most expensive was The Dance of the Happy Shade. Uh, I don't have that one signed, but I think well, that, was that, six, that was like six or seven hundred bucks. I was going to say, you can get a signed copy of that in the first edition for not much more than that. Yeah. You know, what Canadian writer has a higher international reputation than no. Alice Munro? No, maybe Mordecai Richler, but Alice Munro certainly. Yeah, you're quite right. Out. Well, and, and you're right that if you look at comparable writers, from other countries, you're not talking seven or eight hundred dollars. I mean, would it then be a wise thing to go out and buy a lot of Alice Munro's first? Uh, not necessarily, right? No. Because it may never, you know, it may never uh, translate into that kind of financial value. But yeah. is there any doubt the importance of Alice Munro's writing to Canadian culture? I don't think there can be. There should be. So what do we do then once you collect? Is it incumbent upon the collector to do something? with their collections, to think about them, to write about them. It seems to me that that's the reflection of the collector mm -hmm. on his or her collection is is what's important. Yeah, Walter Benjamin and, and the, the forming the, the magic circle. That's actually a very good point because if you look at a lot, there's a lot of the books about book collecting are written by collectors who didn't write other things. Whatever they did for a living, um, they weren't writers per se, but by the act of collecting, eventually they decided to write about it. And I think probably just because the passion gets to be such that... that uh, you've got to share it. You've got to share it. it yeah. is, and, and that's because I talk a bit about the library being a refuge, you know, and you, a sanctuary, and you get away from the world that way. But anybody that gets involved in book collecting knows, especially nowadays with how much you can you know, communicate with people all over the place about your love of books, that it's a very gregarious pursuit. Mm -hmm. uh, it can be. I mean, it doesn't have to be. You can do it entire. You can be a complete hermit if you want, especially now. You don't even have to deal with book dealers. You, know, you don't have to go to bookstores if you don't want to. You can yeah. do it all over the net. But, but I think most people love to, love to talk about it. The collector part of it is the desire to talk about how they acquired the book, why the book's important, 
yeah. to share. I, I've interviewed one of the great collectors alive right now, uh, Mark Samuels Lasner is his name, and, mm -hmm. and he collects the bodily head, among other right. many other things. He tells me that he has people in pretty well every city, if not yeah. around the world, and certainly in the United States, where he can go to, you know, he can go to that city and just feel yeah. really at home, which yeah. is, which is a, it's pretty, a pretty great feeling. That's a bit of what poetry's like in Canada. I can mm -hmm. go most places in the country and feel like there's a poet I uh, come into contact with before that I could go and have a coffee with. It's another level when you're talking about a fellow book collector because, <laughs> well, if you can get if you can combine poetry with a book collector, then well, dynamite. Well, I have a longstanding uh, correspondence going with William Hayen, is an American poet who lives in New York, and he's had an amazing book collection that he started collecting in the '60s sold it off to Rochester University, I think, eventually. There, there's the meeting that I'm uh, eventually going to have. I'm going to so one day get to his home in uh, Brockport, New York, and uh, we'll, we'll have a good chat about uh, poetry and book collecting. That's sort of a Christmas present for a year somewhere down the line. I'm speaking with Tim Bowling about uh, his book, In the Suicide's Library, A Book Lover's Journey, published by Gaspro Press. Next quote. Without the material temptation of the book, where would I find the spiritual growth? <laughs> uh, drawing a blank on that. I mean, I, well, that's, yours too. that's mine too. I know, I know. I mean, poets deal, poets have to deal, if they're going to write effective poems, have to deal in the concrete rather than the abstract. So um, maybe the maybe I'm making a relationship there between the material and and the actual world that you can see and touch. Um, you know, it's, I don't think I would have much spiritual growth if I just laid on the grass and thought about God. I need to I need to smell the grass. You know, I, get, I need to have the concrete physical uh, presence, the material presence. Mm -hmm. um, but books, I mean, books are so clearly more than just material products it's material is one word but temptation is the other the, the, the temptation of the material yeah. right right yeah. well certainly the case in that book anyway the, the material temptation of a particular volume keeps the keeps the journey going through the pages there who has not met the species of collector who would view an item again and again play with it like a cat with a mouse hesitate to arrive at a decision and yet all the while wanting it for fear, largely not self-realized, of losing, by gaining possession of the thing, the excitement and fun which he experiences in dallying with the present object of his fancy. That was bookseller Gabriel Wells. I've just been teaching The Great Gatsby, and uh, that's just Jay Gatsby. That's the green light at the end of the dock. As long as you've got that green light there, you've got that desired volume, as soon as you buy it. <laughs> this comes up in book collecting uh, material all the time, in book collecting literature. Once you purchase the volume, uh, a little life goes out of it. It's almost like a sexual conquest, yeah. too, in a way. Well, and a lot of book collectors make that uh, that kind of comparison, which is taking it a little too far for me. <laughs> but, uh, but, but it's certainly half the fun, more than half the fun, 
is wrestling with yourself about whether you should go ahead and buy something. If, yeah. if, if, I, don't, if I don't buy this, I could buy this. Plus, there's an adrenaline Absolutely. that comes. It's a, am I going to blow all that money on this? <laughs> am, I, am, am I really just about yeah. to spend all this money that yeah. I don't have? Yeah, yeah. And of course, with books, though, what's funny about it is if you were doing that, you know, in Vegas or something, and it wouldn't, you wouldn't have any kind of what you mentioned already the, the, the notion of collectors and the value of collecting to the culture, right? Well, collectors can delude themselves into into being noble mm -hmm. about their their spending. You know, it's like, and I think I talk about that in this book that no one else knows the value of this particular That's Wallace right. Stevens collection except mm -hmm. me. I have to save it for for the future. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm so the you, hero. It's yeah. also there's a power in that too, and you do, yeah. you do refer to it. The fact that that you have this knowledge, mm -hmm. and you can go into a place, and most people don't have that knowledge, but you know that that. That edition versus that one is way yeah. more valuable. Well, you know, and you hear this from a lot of people in the book uh, antiquarian book business, is that a lot of that fun's gone, disappeared. It really has. It's been. Yeah. It takes the wind out of yeah. the sails. Every Joe can just look it up on the net. Yeah. When I think about what booksellers should be doing to encourage yeah. collectors, yeah. it's to seed their shelves with finds. No, absolutely, and I. I think if I have a sort of a fantasy book dream, plot me down in New York's Fourth Avenue in 1958 with, with a list of Canadian books or something that I'm going to look for. Serendipity books in California just went out of business. Yeah. And I never got there. And, mm -hmm. and, it, and it was one of these great, gigantic sort of bookstores that had an inventory that was vast and, and you know you could disappear into it. And the prices may not have been updated for a long time, but the owner, Peter Howard, who had died uh, recently, a couple of years ago, he would know the value of everything because he bought everything. And so he had that kind of bookseller's mind. Those sorts of places um, where rare. you can just wander into. I mean, I spent, as a young man, I, I used to go into McLeod's books yeah. in Vancouver, and I still do when I go back to Vancouver. Just there. Yeah, and, yeah, and piles it's and piles. piles and piles and narrow little aisles, and you go down into that basement. And, and there's a good poetry and, section. And in there. there's a good poetry section, and you can find, I mean, I, the last time I was there, I picked up a signed Adrian Rich book for, you know, I don't know, $20 or something. And that ex serendipity, I wasn't looking for it. Yeah. I just happened to go in there and and you know, I don't think McLeod's. McLeod's. I don't think they have a uh, internet. I don't think they'd bother at all. Yeah. Good on them. <laughs> well, I wish fifty percent of booksellers would still. I wish they'd all go back to that yeah, if yeah. they could. But on the other hand, you know, I'm sure you you would admit this too that it does work both ways. I have books on my shelves that I probably never would have found. Like with the Weldon Keys, uh, one of the things I talk about in the book is how the only thing that he had in his estate after he disappeared that was of any value. He was a book collector and he had some lovely books. As so, was uh, Wallace Stevens. As right? was Wallace Stevens. Yeah. yeah. So I kind of set out in a mild way to see how many, because uh, he signed all of his books. He had this lovely calligraphic signature, and I thought, well, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna keep checking the net and see if I can find uh, Weldon Keys signed books. And I have about nine of them now. And you could probably you know? get them because he's not that well known. You could probably get them for. A f well, Maybe not. No, you know, it's funny because sometimes when someone's obscure, they're, they're, and he worked with some, some fine presses, uh, probably the Grabhorn, uh, you would think you could get it for a pittance. Yeah. Um, but it's a little bit more than that because people who know, know. 
but if you're looking on the internet, I, I can only find the ones that someone has recognized as being an important welding. Like there may be Weldon Keys books from his library that are sitting somewhere in some bookstore that the books owner does never heard of Weldon Keys and yeah. and hasn't even you know hasn't bothered to punch his name in to see anything. That's I mean, what you live for, I guess. That's what you, you hope for, and I, I just think it's so much harder, so much harder to find that. But but you know, people that buy do a lot of book buying off the internet. They still have their finds. Books might not be life, but they do shatter the groove. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm quoting Wallace Stevens there. The book talks an awful lot about the multiple selves we have within us, and, and we all have uh, many choices always to make as to how we're going to live, but mostly we don't continually change. What fascinates me about Weldon Keys all his life long, he talked about the other self and just disappearing and starting a new life. And, and of course, it, it just as, as suicide occurs to any intelligent person as as an option at least of course it's an option it doesn't mean you're going to pursue it but but you can be aware of it um the same thing happens to me then the welding keys was sort of an entree for me into that whole realm of thinking about partly middle life and thinking about my past changes what are the changes going to be now and how am i going to shatter the groove and wallace stevens had said that books shatter the groove Uh, it's a way that you can change but not so that you necessarily ruin the lives of everyone around you you know you, you don't have to so dramatically always uh, alter your life what do you mean um, by again books shatter the groove well like if if you get into a, a pattern where life seems to be going along in the same you know a needle in a record but if your life seems to be in a rut well sometimes a certain you know you, you can read a book a book will change your life. A book can words. change your life. Right. A book, a book okay. can a book can give you an insight, you know, point you in a, in a fresh direction, which doesn't require you to, you know, <laughs> to, to go off and yeah. live in another country. Right, or as you yeah. say, get a yeah, yeah. Many, sports car, yeah. Or whatever <laughs> we're talking about. Yeah. yeah, leaving in fact, leaving your wife for another woman. Moving to an exciting or an exotic land, jumping off a bridge to your death, even collecting books. Behind all these acts lies a primordial desire for rebirth, for a transformation from one existence to another, which includes, of course, non-existence. Every civilization and culture has trafficked in the magic of change. Well, I think we're sort of continually in the process of of changing for... (laughs) This is, it's just simple biology, and I think that is a big challenge, and I think it's especially a big challenge in our society because from the time we're born, we're encouraged to fulfill ourselves. We don't necessarily know what that means to do it, so this process of being restless and dissatisfied is, mm-hmm. you know, it's sold to us. It's a whole societal pressure to not do what you're passionate <laughs> about because if everyone did that, then yeah. we'd have chaos. There's two things going on there. On the one hand, we're, we're not all supposed to go running off. And, and it's not human nature for that to happen anyway. Most people can't. They uh, crave sustain. order. Yeah, mm. people have to have structure. And one of the interesting things about Weldon Keyes is that he was the opposite of a bohemian. I mean, he was a very, very conservative and uh, conservative in terms of he dressed conservatively. He was very neat. He was very orderly. Handsome, but yeah, yeah handsome. Uh, but he had he had his issues, yeah. and he kept them under wraps uh, for as long as he could. 
And then uh, it exploded. And then it exploded. Yeah. And, and frankly, it, in his case, I think his wife was alcoholic and finally he finally split from her. But shortly after the divorce, that's when, that's when he jumped off school and gave birth. It's like the order that they had built. Somehow he couldn't survive without it. Weldon Keyes' most famous poem is called For My Daughter. And it's famous because there's a shock line at the end that talks of, you know, these speculations sour in the sun. Uh, I have no daughter, I desire none. And it's sort of a parody of Yeats. Sounds like sonnet almost. Well, it is. And, yeah. yeah. And he, he's one of the bitterest, bleakest poets yeah. in history. So that's, that's actually where, where most people know him from. That's his most anthologized poem. But it, he never had children. And his wife was probably even more opposed to the idea. So part of me as a father speculates on you know, what parenthood does to, to the groove. You know, it, it kind of loads those questions about shattering the groove. Um, it makes them a little different you know, when there's repercussions to whatever, whatever you do to shatter the groove, if it's more than just you, it complicates the decision <laughs> you know, in, yeah. in ways that uh, matters more to some people than others. But anyway, all of it, you know, really, Nigel, all of it, all of the collecting, parenting, it's all about investing life with some meaning, uh, some purpose. And I think in my case, I think a lot of it has to do with, I just feel happy when I look at my child and I take down a book and, yeah. and especially one that I've, I've spent a fair bit of money on yeah. and I take it down and I look at it and I just, I'm, I'm, I feel just good about the human species and I need to. The fact that someone took the time to produce this, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, and and that there's this chain of being, chain of creation that, that you can participate in, you know, and a lot of people don't, you know, yeah. and and I feel I'm grateful every time I look at my bookshelves. I'm grateful. I'm grateful to whatever forces conspired to make me appreciate the book. I'm 48 now. If I have any regrets at all, it's that I wish I had been a book collector. 25 years ago. Yeah, I feel like you know. exactly the same way. I, I just got into it maybe a dozen or yeah. 13 years ago. I always acquired, quite an acquirer, but not a collector. Yeah. And boy, it's just it's like a, a brilliant door opening up Yeah. with with new reasons to go into every store. Yeah. It seems like every couple of months I got some new reason to go into the same store. Yeah. So it's a different store every time. Yeah. So it, it really is a wonderful pastime. It can take over. <laughs> it, it, it. It, it can, yeah. yeah. So it's an attempt to find meaning in our lives. And how does it answer that uh, attempt then? I think it would be the same as poetry. I don't know that there's a final answer. I think it's a process. My own feeling about it is that there are times when I think, okay, that's it. I, I I can't spend any more money on books. I gotta stop. And a little part of the book collecting thing that comes in is, is almost a kind of a, I wish that I could go back to to not caring about editions <laughs> sometimes because yeah. because then I could go into these bookstores and I could just pick up any old cheap copy of of a book that I read before that I love and be happy and be happy and yeah. and have it on my shelves and think wow I'm gonna read that again now and party with my kids too. I think like I want to have. I should have all kinds of cheap copies of all the classics lying mm -hmm. around mm -hmm. so that they can just pick them up, right? I don't want them just pick, taking down my yeah, without you yelling at them. of Alice Monroe <laughs> and, and, you know, and dropping food all over it. Part of it is valuing it so much. Uh, it's exactly like poetry. 
You know, the poet Don Demansky says, the, at the moment that you're writing it and creating it, you have to believe it is the most important thing in the world. But at the same time, you have to believe you yourself are absolutely meaningless in the universe. You don't really matter. But the poem absolutely matters. And I mm. think collecting is somewhat like that. One of the great heartaches for any collector is what what happens when the Grim Reaper starts to become more of a... What, what are you going to do with the books? Where are the books going to go? Now, often, over the past century, books have, have gone, been donated to... To libraries well what happens what happens now that libraries are getting rid of material books the libraries are going increasingly uh, electronic they won't even they won't want books so where are the books where are the libraries are going to go there's two types of collectors uh, or two um, approaches to the end one is i'm just going to throw them back in the ocean yeah. so that others can enjoy what i've enjoyed right. But there is a, this this sense or this desire for immortality. Mm -hmm. I have gathered this inf this information, yeah. this this content together in a way that no one else ever yeah. has, and it, it's meaningful because of this and yeah. this and this. Well, your your governor general's award winners, like you can't. I'm sure you can't bear to think of just willy nilly selling them off or letting them all go just without some recognition of having put them put that together right it mm. says something it might like maybe this is where the writing comes from maybe the collector becomes the writer mm, the because, scholar because he's got to he's got to mark the achievement even if even if the books are, are eventually dispersed but there's going to be a document that's going to say that they were together and you know, here you get into the realm. I did something that I never, never even was not not even part of my vocabulary up until a few years ago. I have a I commissioned a book plate. I had a a, a fellow from uh, England who I happened to, to to get into touch with through Crispin Elsted, a man named Andy English uh, in England, who I found out you know was not that expensive to get my own book plate. So I had him do some. Up for me to work worked with him and, and came up with an image that I'm really delighted with. What what and is it, that image? By well, way? I I come from a salmon fishing family, so it, it's a little picture of a of a salmon gill netter with with a, with a salmon in it, and it's sort of a figure that I think of as my father. Simple, but it's it's a striking little image. And I'm in the process now. I put I put one into a book about every uh i don't know once a week a part of me thinks that when if the books go back into the ocean then someone will have the experience yeah. that i had with with the weldon keys book yeah. and that's that's how the, the the dialogue continues you know someone might somewhere in the world flip open a book and there's my book plate and who maybe they've heard of my name somehow you know from something somewhere um, none of us know, you know, the fate of our own writer. As writers, you know, your books can wind up anywhere. But I, I think I've had as much fun. I don't know how many, uh, how much you read book collecting books. Well, I've got, but, I've got but, a, I've uh, got a lot of them. Yeah, I love. Well, them. I'll tell you. You see that over there? That those are all publishers' histories. Oh yeah, all of them. Yeah. And yeah. so, reading a publisher's history yeah. is like going into a bookstore because they're. There is mention yeah. of important, interesting books that have come, yeah. and that's that's what, what this whole project's about. Yeah, it's a good I know project. exactly what you're, you're talking good. about. I just 
bought some Herbert Faulkner West books, books written in the 1920s and 1930s. And there's one essay in one of them talks about his Robert Frost collection. You know, and I just, I, I enjoy hearing the passion of someone who's, you know, been dead for 50 years about the meaning that books had for him and his life, you know, and, and I think, boy, it, it's, it's, it's precedent. If this was an intelligent, sensitive person, yeah. and this gave him pleasure and meaning, then that's probably a pretty good endorsement. I think it's going to keep us alive a bit longer than we might otherwise have, a bit longer than we might yeah. otherwise have, have, yeah, no. have been on the earth. Book collectors, traditionally, and booksellers uh, live, <laughs> live a long time. They don't want to let go of the books. Yeah. Well, here's to many more years of uh, happy hunting. Thanks. Absolutely. You're very welcome. Thank you. I've been speaking with Tim Bowling, who is the author of In the Suicides Library, a book that has a, a narrative arc that delves into the uh, mysterious minds of book collectors. And most recently, you're working on... Oh, well, I have a new novel coming out next week, but I'm, I'm working on a, a project about Buster Keaton, actually. This is my love of books, and now I think I'm going to touch a little bit on my love of, of silent film. And how it relates the 1920s, when the height of Buster Keaton's art form, in some ways, are a lot like today. There's a, there's a lot of really interesting parallels. So, so, and I understand. I was looking at a paper here today that some almost silent film won won the Academy yeah, Award right, or something. Artist, so yeah. Maybe it's a zeitgeist. Yeah. Part of who knows. Best of luck with yeah, that. Thank you. Yeah.